Big Leads Press Pass podcast. Today I am joined by Todd Archer from ESPN, who's been covering the Cowboys for some time. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. You got Lamb. How we doing? Oh, doing all right. Fortunately, safe and healthy. Hopefully, you can stay the stay the same. Yep. Yeah, all good down here too. Good stuff. Going a little crazy, but that's all right. Who is? <laughs> um, so, as always, Todd, we'll just start with uh, why don't you just explain to us uh, your journey through sports media from when you realized that journalism was something you wanted to do to where you are now with ESPN? Yeah, I, I listened to the podcast a couple of weeks ago with Mike Reese, and it was kind of a, a similar start where we yeah. grew up reading the Boston Globe. Um, and it was just something like, wow, that's a really cool job. And, uh, you know, my, my senior year in high school, I grew up in, in Medway, Mass. Um, okay. And a, my, my senior year in high school, I got sick. And one of the local papers did a story on me because I got sick, I guess. Um, and they <laughs> and they were saying, well, what do you want to do when you get older? And I go, Michael, I want to be like you guys. I want to be a sports writer. My goal is to cover an NBA finals next, sitting next to Bob Ryan. Mm. And, you know, I was a guy, the Sunday paper would come from the Globe, and I'd read every notes column, Gammons and Shaughnessy, Jackie McMullen, Bob Ryan, Kevin DuPont, all these guys, and just soak it all up. And I thought, man, this is the best job in the world. Mm. And that, that was as a sophomore, started sophomore in high school, and then senior year, I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. And I went to Northeastern, co-op program. I, I was able to work at the Boston Globe for four years, so I'm working next to Will McDonough and Bob Ryan and Lee Montville and all these guys. And it was just the greatest thing ever. Covered high school sports there. Uh, graduated in 92. Went up to Concord, New Hampshire, where this is going to sound strange for people. They actually were adding uh, a Sunday paper. So they were adding people. Nowadays, no one thinks of adding anything. So I uh, got to start up in Concord, New Hampshire, covering high schools and New Hampshire International Speedway because they had the uh, Winston Cup race at the time. And I still know nothing about cars. But I was the auto racing rider up there as well as high schools and University of New Hampshire. And, you know, that was a place where you did everything. You were on the desk. You were in the comp room. You were, you were doing everything. And it was allowed you to learn. And I was probably there for a couple of years. Jim McBride, who covers the Patriots for the Globe, we were together there. We were roommates. We actually worked at the Globe together as well as co-op kids. And then in 94, 5, 94, 95, I went back to the Globe, worked in their weekly department. Uh, writing features as a full-time, part-time guy, worked on the sports desk, covered sidebars on Patriots, Celtics, Red Sox, Bruins, all that good stuff, um, and always hoped that one day I would be working there and, and get a full-time gig, and I thought that was the best way to do it, was go back there, and in, in 1996, I got a job offer from the Cincinnati Post to cover Xavier basketball, okay. and, um, and it was a, I went to the Globe Sports Editor, I'm like, look, I really don't want to leave but what should I do? I know this opportunity is like, you should take this opportunity because it's always better to go somewhere else and come back. Mm-hmm. Well, that was 1996. It's now 2020. And I'm still not back at the Boston Globe. I, I went from Cincinnati, 96 to 99, met my wife there. I covered Xavier, covered the Bengals for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, from 2000 to 2002, covered the Dolphins after the 62 to 7 uh, finale of Jimmy Johnson and Dan Marino's careers. So I had Dave Wants at time where they made the playoffs a couple of times, Zach Thomas, Jason Taylor, all those guys. Mm-hmm. And then 2003, I went to the morning news in Dallas and I've been covering the Cowboys ever since 2010 moved to ESPN Dallas. Um, when they had the local zone, uh, the, the local dot coms and then 20, oh gosh, 
2013, I think, when they started NFL Nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I moved into that role, and I've been doing this uh, ever since. So uh, it's been a covering the NFL since 1997, and uh, still waiting for a team that, that I cover to get to a conference title game. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, patience is a virtue. Uh, so yeah. that's yeah, lots of uh, lots of good globe stuff there. Love the globe, but um, yeah, I've talked to you know I've been doing this podcast for six months now, seven months. I've talked to a lot of guys, and not a single one of them ever covered auto racing. So as that as you're kind of that your first like from what the sounds of it was your first like full time sort of sp- individual sport beat, and I know you're doing a lot of other stuff up there, but that was like your beat up there. What did you learn from that experience as a young reporter? Uh, how to tell stories about something you know absolutely nothing about. Uh, I, like I said, I, I know nothing about cars and, uh, you know, how to do oil, something as simple as probably as an oil change. No idea. But you learn to tell the stories of who these people are. And mm. um, it was it was great. And they, they had this push north tour. It was like a, just a New England only kind of deal. They might have had some races in upstate New York, but I, I would cover some races in Maine and in and, and New Hampshire, obviously smaller tracks and, it was just really cool to get to know some of the drivers. Like Ricky Craven was a guy from Concord, New Hampshire, lived in Concord, New Hampshire, was like the big guy that we all got to know and write about and, and follow a little bit. So I got to know Ricky pretty well. Um, but then there's a guy, Dave Dillon, and I think it was Dillon or Dion so many years ago now. But he, he had his, his uh, hauler was a hollowed out school bus. And I remember I just wrote a story about the school bus, and, and it was something that stuck with me. Just like, I, look, I can't tell them about cars, but here's a guy that he travels all over the eastern coast and down south, and you know, in this school bus, and he drives from here to there with family and things. And it was just a cool, cool story to tell. And like that kind of got me to realize it's not about what you know necessarily about the sport. That absolutely, absolutely helps, mm. but it's about the people and telling the people story, not just the X's and the O's. Certainly. And then you're from the sounds of it, you're New England, you were a New England kid through and through up until you got that Cincinnati offer. And so not only did you end up taking it as your first full time individual beat for a big newspaper, it was also, you know, first time you, you know, you went to college in Boston, all this stuff, kind of the first time you ended up in Cincinnati. How did you deal with all that? Uh, Well, uh, Jeff Horrigan, who covered the uh, Red Sox for the Herald for a long time was covering the Reds for the Cincinnati Post. So I kind of knew Jeff from mutual acquaintances. He was mm-hmm. a Globe intern guy, Northeastern kid as well. So I knew him. So I knew somebody down there at least that 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 helped out a lot. But again, going to a strange part of the country that I never thought it would be. I, I can still remember driving over one of the bridges in in Cincinnati. And then all of a sudden I'm in Kentucky and I called my buddy and I'm like, you wouldn't believe where I am right now. I'm in Kentucky. Like, I mean, you grew up where we, where we were. Like, you just don't, that, that wasn't, it wasn't in, in the thought process of like, I'm going to live near Kentucky one day. It was just never really got crossed my mind or any of my buddy's minds. And it was just the strangest thing. But now, you know, I, I look back at Cincinnati, my time there at the post, I met my wife. Um, I met some great people at Xavier and great people in covering the Bengals, despite their lack of on-field success, was so helpful and and, and worthwhile to me that it, you know it it helped shape a lot of the way that it, that I am even today. That I, I I love Cincinnati and part of me wonders if I was not at the afternoon newspaper, if I was at the Enquirer, would I really look to have left um, to go to Palm Beach to cover the Dolphins for for three years or whatever, stayed there because just love the area so much. Certainly. 
and then kind of staying on that Cincinnati topic, that is when you made your first jump to covering professional football full time. How was that going from the Xavier beat to the Bengals beat? Yeah, uh, it was interesting. My first year, I was like kind of like the backup guy, I would help out and did a couple of road trips. But then, you know, you, you move up and you're covering the team full time, and the biggest benefit and, and of covering that team was. I could talk to Mike Brown, the owner and general manager, whenever I wanted. He was at every practice. You could just walk up to him and, and pick his brain and get to ask him questions. And some of it was on the record, and some of it was just kind of figuring some things out. And he, he was extremely helpful in, in that regard because he knew, I, you know, as a young guy, didn't really know what I was doing. But mm-hmm. he, he valued the hard work that people would put in if you if you made the effort. And, um, you know, you, you, you got guys like – Carl Pickens was kind of a prickly guy in the media. wasn't very well liked, but for some reason, and maybe it's because he didn't like my competitor that much that he liked me. So he would tell me things. And so you, again, you're, you're building relationships in the locker room. And that was the time where I was closer to the players ages and the coaches and obviously the owners, but you, you were able to talk about similar things and build similar interests and, and get to know players that way. And, and, it was it was it was really cool. Even if the best time the best they were was seven and nine, and that was because Boomer Siason came in at the end of the time, went four and one before he took the Monday Night Football job in '98. So, but again, I was you're able to learn and kind of make some mistakes in an era where no one really noticed it as much as they would today through Twitter and, and social media and the like. Definitely. What did you think when uh, Boomer took that Monday Night Football job as somebody who had covered him for the Bengals? Uh always thought that was going to be a natural for him because he was such a good guy for the media to talk to and had a national presence and everybody knew who he was and uh, played multiple teams so you know had had a lot of success I I I thought he would have been I thought he was good but I just think there was obviously some behind the scenes stuff that didn't go as well that made it last just the one year between him and Al Michaels but um, it's kind of now you just got me thinking like Boomer going for that one year, and then I covered Jason Witten when he went one year to Monday Night Football. It was kind of two opportunities. Neither guy could pass up, but it didn't work out as well as as many would have thought for either guy. Certainly. And what are kind of, as somebody who's, you know, covered both of those guys, what are some of the, maybe some of the common traits, or did they share any traits that made you feel like they could have, they well, they could have succeeded in the position they ended up taking? Yeah, they, both guys could explain football to a novice like me, I didn't grow up playing the game. I, I never played it down to football in my life. I played soccer, basketball, and baseball. Um, so they could explain things to you in, in a way where you're like, oh, okay, now I get it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think they, Boomer for sure, and, and even Witten at times, I, mean, I, I think social media kind of just did a number on, on his time. But yeah. if you actually listen to some of the things that he said, was really good down in distances and late game situations. And yeah, he had some mistakes, but I think no one wanted, once he made the mistakes, no one wanted to listen to anything else. And they would just, it kind of became, unfortunately, a, a drinking game for everybody to, to, and even that way for Booger and, and, and Joe Testor as well, it became a drinking game for people to just to pile on. And, and it's, it's unfortunate because I think people missed out on actually listening to some of the things that Jason Witten said as a, as an analyst, that was pretty good. Yeah, definitely. I think that that whole Monday Night Football situation in particular was just kind of a big old mess where everything that could have gone wrong went wrong for that one season. Ended up with Witten back on the Cowboys, which is 
quite a little roller coaster for him, I'm sure. But getting back to uh, your career here, so the your time in Miami was sort of your bridge between Cincinnati and where you are now in Dallas. What did you take away from that Miami situation as that like intermediate stop? Yeah, so you, you go you go from the Bengals, and, and again they're, they're three and thirteen or seven and nine at best. And I remember going to the Dolphins, and I'm saying, and I was just like, wow, this is this is a world of difference. And going on road trips, and you stay at the team's hotel, and there are people waiting for the guys to show up. And I was like, oh, I didn't see this when the Bengals showed up. There wasn't a lot of people outside the hotels, and but you know, it's Zach Thomas and Jason Taylor. Uh, you know, really good players. Jason in the Hall of Fame, Zach, a finals just last year. Uh, it was after Marino, and I still think there was some glow from that from the team and, and, and Shula as well, that they still had this cachet about them, that, that they were one of the premier franchises in the NFL. So I, I think I went there and kind of realized, like, okay, here's another level of the NFL and, and the success that they had from the past and what they're able to do with Wanstead and, and getting to the playoffs a couple of years. But that was another situation where I'm at, I'm at the Palm Beach Post. It's not the Miami Herald or the yeah. Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel, but you're still there every day and you're treated the same from the team and the players and everybody. And, and there was a person with the doll, two people with the dolphins that taught us how did you figure out the salary cap? Ryan Weedmeyer, who unfortunately is no longer with us. He was a, one of the high ups with the organization, and Matt Thomas, who one of their uh, council and, and was their cap guy. Well, they taught us all. They brought us into this room. I'll never forget it. And they said, this is how the salary cap works, because I think they got tired of everybody messing stuff up publicly about how the cap works. Yeah. And there are lessons now that I remember and, and still use today from what those guys told us back in, 19, or back in 2000, 2001, of how the cap works. And there's you think of it now, how important the cap is and how relative everything is. Again, a, a great situation where, kind of like Mike Brown, there to answer your questions, there to help you out and, and be there. And then you had two guys in the organization um, there to help you out and explain things to you because they want to make sure that stuff is right. There, there wasn't this adversarial, we hate you, we can't stand you. Yep. Dave wants that was among the nicest guys I've ever covered. I mean, he didn't do a lot of there were a lot of things he probably should have done differently as a coach. But again, from my perspective, a guy that was helpful in, in us doing our job. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> be easy to mess up the cap, I'd say. So for them to sit down and give you a full on presentation on exactly how it works is quite generous. All things considered. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that's because they just got tired of like people misconstruing things or not understanding how stuff works. And, you know, it, it's, and it still happens today when it comes to these, um, to stories that you'll see. Like when you see stories when people are at so-and-so restructured his contract uh, and he's now, he's helping the team out. He's not helping the team out. He's getting the same exact amount of money as he was before. It's an accounting trick that the teams are doing. He's not getting any more money in his pocket. It's just an accounting deal where they can move some around and lower numbers and that, that, that's all it is. But people think like, oh, what a great team guy. He restructured his deal. Didn't cost a guy anything. Now, a pay cut, completely different story, but a restructure and a pay cut are two different things. Yeah, that's that being able to understand that difference. I mean, that was back in the what early 2000s, you said, or late 90s. Yeah. Yeah. So being able to take that knowledge and then apply that, as you said, as the cap grows more and more relevant and as sports media in general grows as far as the eyes on the table and people wanting to understand that sort of thing, I mean, that's an amazing experience to have. Yeah. And 
like they didn't have to do that, but again, it was something that they took the time and, you know, I think they appreciate the fact that we were in there trying to learn to get better at what we were doing, that it wasn't just take, take, take. And, and from, from the relationship, it was more trying to figure out things to make sure, hey, the number one goal for all of us is to be right. So how do we be right? And they were, they were kind enough to do that. Good mindset for sure. And then what inspired the, uh, the leap to Dallas, where you now find yourself? Uh, well, the Dallas Morning News and the Boston Globe, I mean, it's hard to argue that those aren't back in the day were two of the best sports sections ever right i mean it, you know you think of the, the the names that the morning news has produced over the years and the 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 fame of that section and going there it felt like to me like i was going to the globe uh in, in a lot of respects and yeah. you know let's be honest it's the cowboys i talked about the jump from the Bengals to the dolphins yeah well there's also another one you go from the dolphins to the cowboys and you know, and, and Jerry Jones and everything that this organization um, had been over the years and uh, f- from before Jerry to through Jerry. And it's, it's, it was too good of an opportunity to kind of pass up to go from Palm Beach uh, to Dallas. Definitely. And then you just brought up Jerry Jones. And Jerry, by the time you took that job, had already, you know, he'd been around for a while. People kind of knew what the deal with Jerry Jones was. But as a reporter, what was your first experience like with Jerry Jones? This man. Yeah, this he's, man. The, he's the only billionaire I know. Um, so <laughs> um, I, it, it's hard to uh, compare him to some other people. But if if every billionaire was like Jerry in terms of just face-to-face dealings and and, and and getting to talk to him mm-hmm. maybe you know we, we we should all be so lucky i mean he's he's the best and from not just as a person or uh, that's what i'm getting at. i'm just like from what we need in our perspective yeah he, he's available after every game not i don't know any other owner that does that and sometimes that's probably to his detriment but that's his detriment that's not my detriment i, I appreciate the fact that he's out there answering our questions five ten 20 times over again after game after game. Um, and, and he's, he's, he doesn't, I don't want to say he doesn't care that he gets, he'll get ripped or blasted by people, but he has an unbelievable way of just moving on and understanding like, yeah, you know, this was, we've had a bad run year here, or, or we've had a bad season. We made bad decisions. He gets it. And he doesn't hold any kind of grudge. The next day you can see him and it's going to, he'll answer your questions. And he's not, I, I don't, I've never been in a situation where maybe, well, maybe there's a couple where I've gotten some calls from people who say he didn't like that. He didn't appreciate that. But again, the next time I saw him, it wasn't like he just gave you the cold shoulder and wouldn't talk to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, my fun, one story, it had to have been, he was at least 70 years old. And I remember seeing Jerry, he was wearing a leather sports jacket, not like a leather jacket, but like a leather sports jacket. Okay. And I'm looking at him like he's 70 years old. I'm like, you know, when I'm 70-something years old, I hope I'm wearing a leather sports cap, a sports <laughs> jacket. Don't even have a care in the world. Like, I mean, he, he was – it was <laughs> – that's that's Jerry, though. I mean, he's just kind of a guy that he, he's available to you, and he doesn't care what you say necessarily. And, you know, I, every everybody thinks it's the, it's the worst having to cover him, but honestly, in some respects, it's the best. Yeah, certainly. As a reporter, you're <laughs> Jerry Jones is a walking soundbite. So I mean, 
while I'm sure there are certain negatives to dealing with an outsized personality like that, just from any perspective there, as a, like you said, as a journalist, I don't think you could ask for a better owner. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You listen to Jerry talk and as you're listening to it, it makes perfect sense what he's saying. And then you go back and you listen to it on tape and you're like, what in the world did he say? What does that even mean? You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of times, uh, where that happens and there's you know times now in covering this team since 2003 where I've heard the story that he tells to the players every training camp so I could tell the story or or I know if they get in a certain situation the the one story is going to talk about you know when they go play the Rams he's going to talk about the first time in their new stadium he's going to talk about the first time when he saw the Astrodome and he was playing at Arkansas and they were getting ready for the Cotton Bowl and they went down there to practice before they came up to Dallas. And, oh, my God, he couldn't believe the size and the, the, of this thing and how just what it was like. And I know that's the story we're going to get when the Cowboys hopefully open the season the first week at the Rams New Stadium or when they play the Chargers in the preseason there. Um, it's, but, again, I, I'd rather have the same story 10, 15, 20 times than not have the chance to talk to the guy at all. Definitely. It's a unique experience, I'm sure. But you were, at the, you were at the morning news until ESPN made you an offer. What made you decide to go over to ESPN? It, that was a tough decision. Um, I, I still remember sitting in Bob Yates, our sports editor's office, going back and forth with him. And, he, you know, it was just a situation where I felt if I turned down ESPN, I think it was 2010 when I went over, then I wouldn't have a chance to work there again. And yeah. uh, uh, it was just – similar to every kind of move I made, it, it was just too good to pass up for the mm-hmm. opportunity of what the future might hold. And I, I can't complain with the decision that I've made. Uh, it, it's been pretty good uh, for me and for the co- and hopefully for the company as well. But, you know, it's been a, a, a situation where you, you've had some freedom to do some things at ESPN that I wouldn't have been able to do at the morning news. Like what? Uh, television and the television stuff, basically, um, you know, yeah, you'd have some local TV appearances that you make, but putting together, you know, end of day elements for for sports center or features for sports center or the weekend sports center, or, you know, long form piece that I did last year on Romo before he played in the PGA event here in Dallas, uh, walking 18 holes with him, you know, those sort of things I wouldn't have been able to do at the, at the morning news just because, they don't have that breadth, that that width of uh, of multiple platforms, and, th- and that was one thing that really attracted me to to go into ESPN. It's it's not just a a dot com job that I have. It's a it's a TV job. It's a it's a radio job. It's it's a little bit of everything, and that's kind of what you you have to be multifaceted, I guess, uh, this day and age to be able to to survive. That's definitely true. Had you ever done sort of like that sort of prominent TV stuff before? Only no, not really. It's more of like the the local guy would have you on for ten minutes after a game or something. Uh, that that's kind of what what I had done before, but never really doing the um, stand ups or the questions, for, you know, from, from Bristol and the sports and the hits and things like that. NFL Live, never really done that before, and I always felt like, God, I'm a guy who should be in like the 875th market learning this stuff. And here I am on sports center and, you know, my, my earpiece cuts out when Hannah storm and Teddy Bruschi are talking to me and I'm looking at the camera and I'm like, man, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do right now. 
and I and I just walked off. You know <laughs> I mean? I'm like, and then I became a I became a meme there for a little bit. So thankfully, I'm sure that I'm sure it's still out there somewhere. But again, if I if I had I just had no idea what to do, and I froze, and I'm like, I can't just stand here and do nothing. So I just I thought, it, it, but then it turns out I should have just sat, stood there and done nothing, because then they would have figured out that all right, we lost communication with them. Exactly. You live and you learn. And by meme standards, that's pretty forgiving. So all things considered, you got to win. I have some friends to bring it up, though. So yeah, of course. Uh, so you mentioned you mentioned Romo there, and as so Romo is now you know, the highest paid color commentator ever, all that good stuff. As somebody who covered him over the course of his career, I imagine he had some of the similar qualities that you mentioned about Witten and about Boomer. But did you think that he would be as wildly successful as he is in an analyst job? Well, I can say yes and just say, oh, yeah, I saw this coming and I can, you know, I'm so prescient and I know all this stuff. But no one saw this. No one saw how good he would be and the the ability to – forecast things and predict things and you know he's he's far exceeded what i thought he would be i thought he'd be really good because again he can take the game and explain it to you pretty quickly and pretty simply uh, when you're at when you're at his locker for a quiet moment as to why he made a play or why he thought this was going to happen so i knew that that he would be able to nope todd sorry about that I knew I knew he'd be able to um, give that information pretty quickly. I, I didn't know that he'd be able to give this forecast stuff and, and and be that good that that way. I mean, he's Tony's a guy that can see something once, remember it, and then recall it. So uh, he, he's like Jack Nicholas in the '63 Masters could tell us every single shot that he had when he when he won. Well, Romo's the same way when he's watching a game. Like he can tell you. Oh yeah, that play. Okay, here's what happened. It's a little bit like Sean McVay uh, in the Rams. He just has a, a memory and a, an ability to recall that that was pretty unmatched. Yeah, it's, he's a he's a lot of fun to listen to. And the, I guess the only person who could have forecasted him being that good is Tony Romo because all he does is forecast that kind of stuff. So yeah, I'm gonna say he didn't even think he'd be this good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have pretty high expectations for himself going into a new job, being like, yeah, in a couple of years I'll break records for the salary. That's fine. I'm I'm cool with that. <laughs> yeah, and I was, you know, you get some fans like, oh, he should be the Cowboys head coach or the Cowboys offensive coordinator. I'm like, why would he want to work that hard? <laughs> I mean, not that he's not working hard now, but I mean, he can make $18 million a year to, to call 20 games or whatever they end up doing. And, you know, he, he's his work week is at his leisure. It's not really something, you know, as a coach where you're in there at four in the morning and grinding until midnight every night. Mm-hmm. And he can play as much golf as he, as he wants from like February yeah, you hit, and August. So. Exactly. Yep. You hit on that one. Yeah, exactly. All right. Yeah, that's quite a journey for you, Todd. But here you are. I would say that ESPN is pretty happy they hired you considering that you are still employed. So I'd say, you know, you don't have a lot to worry about there. <laughs> but uh, now let's talk well, some Cowboys. Oh, okay. you want to start? No, 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 we're good. All right. Cool, cool, cool. So. Obviously, the big talking point with Dallas this offseason has been the Dak Prescott contract negotiation. We got nothing right now. So as the Cowboys guy for ESPN, in your purview, what is the biggest holdup right now? And do you see getting a deal getting done before the deadline for Prescott to sign his exclusive franchise tag? I'll go to something that Jerry Jones told us last year during the Elliott talks when he said, when have I never gotten, not gotten a deal done? 
Yeah. So I think eventually they will get something done here before July 15th. Uh, as to why it's not done, everything. It's everything. It's average per year. It's the guarantee. It's the length of the deal. It's the 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 deferrals. It's the cash flow. It's it's all that stuff that still needs to be worked out. It, now all that stuff can be worked out pretty quickly and easily, uh, but for some reason, it's just not happened yet. And it's it's I give Dak some credit for you know especially last year. Now it's kind of easy because it's not missing anything. It's not like they have a game this week or anything. So he can kind of hold firm now. But I, I give him credit. Looking back on it, you know last September they're they're dangling thirty three million a year and a hundred or so guaranteed in front of them before they play the first game. And he's making two million bucks. And he said no. He turned it down. Mm-hmm. He bet on himself. And obviously he had a great season. Um, that's I don't I don't know how many people could turn down a hundred million dollars guaranteed. Yeah. Just say, especially playing this sport, right? I mean, it's that, that was a gutsy move, and it, it's we'll, we'll see eventually when it pays off for him. But you know, he's 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 making at least thirty one point four million dollars this year, mm-hmm. and you know, I have a feeling when he gets his deal done that guarantee will probably be let's call it 110 million or so. Um, so he made himself an extra 10 million bucks in, in some respects, if not more 10 to 15 um, million guaranteed by, by holding out, uh, not holding out. I want people to think that, but <laughs> not signing the deal that they offered him last September. Definitely. And when he does eventually take the field again, he'll have a nice shiny new toy to play with in the form of C.D. Lamb, the Cowboys' first-round pick this season. Absolute coup to get him at 17 there. But he is joining a pretty stacked offensive grouping. So where do you see his – where do you think fans – where fans' expectations should fall for Lamb in his first season in Dallas? It's funny. You know, you look at Randall Cobb's numbers from last year as the third receiver, right? And it was – 155 catches, 820-some yards, and four touchdowns. If CD can do that, okay, that, that's really good because of the guys you referenced, Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, uh, Blake Jarwin, who's taking over for Jason Witten. And then, oh, by the way, he's still got the league's, one of the league's best running backs in Elliott that's going to get the ball done. So I, I think it actually benefits Lamb to come here in a way where he doesn't have to be the guy. Yeah, he have to, he's not the number one. He can kind of work his way in and, and figure it out a little bit. But everybody I've talked to says he can figure things out pretty quickly and and, and is a, a sharp guy. And the fact that he makes so many plays when things break down, I think that's a great element for Dak Prescott, too, because of his ability to buy time. So I, I think he'll have a really good rookie year. But, again, not so much where it's going to be like 80 catches and 1,000 yards just because yeah. of what's going to be around him. This has a chance to be a really good offense, obviously, uh, but I don't know if I would put an early fantasy pick on them uh, this year just because of the, the, the breadth of talent that they seem to have in Mike McCarthy's first year of how he wants to use guys and utilize things. Definitely. And the Cowboys had a, you know, hard to judge drafts immediately after they happened with that caveat. The Cowboys appeared to have had a pretty strong draft in the later rounds there, picking up a lot of guys that maybe should could have gone higher should have gone higher we'll see about should have but which of the draft picks in the second third fourth fifth sixth rounds there do you see potentially being really important their rookie season well you got Trayvon Diggs this is the second round pick so hopefully he's a guy for the Cowboys in their minds can come in and play right away when you look at their cornerback spot when they lose Byron Jones to the Dolphins in free agency um you know he's a guy that 
can go and get the ball. Uh, he, he's he's been a person that the Cowboys tracked for a long time, and initially had maybe a, a thought of taking him in, in the first round, and then they ended up getting him in the middle of the second. So he he's a guy that they're excited about, and I know you know it's easy to say, oh, their second round pick should be good, but I think a guy they're really excited about is their other cornerback they took their fourth rounder, Reggie Robinson from Tulsa. And he's another guy that can go get the ball. Long guy, can run pretty well. Um, Mel Kuyper said he was the most improved player in fo- college football last year. You know, he, he's he's a guy to, to maybe get in that mix, maybe even at safety in his first year with how things have shaken out at the position in the secondary. So he's a guy, I think, on that third day that the Cowboys are, are looking at to be a guy that can surprise a lot of people, maybe get on the field right away. Yeah, between the secondary picks in the draft and then signing Gerald McCoy in free agency, it seems like the Cowboys are making a little bit of an effort here to not necessarily overhaul the defense, but with some additions on the sides, some nice, you know, lesser additions that are trying to turn that unit around. How much do you see that unit improving this year? It's going to be interesting. You know, new coordinator Mike Nolan coming in. They have Jim Tom Sula as their, their uh, defensive line coach. I still don't know where the pass rush comes from outside of Demarcus Lawrence. Um, you know, only had five sacks last year, but still played really well. He, you can't judge him solely on sacks. Had a, had a good season, but they lose Robert Quinn in free agency, 11 and a half sacks led the team. I don't know how they make up that mix just yet, to be honest with you. And mm-hmm. yeah, they signed Alden Smith and they Randy Gregory might be back from suspension, but you know, Alden Smith hasn't played since 2015. Randy Gregory's played 16 games since 2015. Banking on those guys to kind of be your bona fide pass rushers, I don't think is a, is a wise move. So uh, I think they'll be better on defense. I think they'll have the ability to go get the ball. Some of it's going to depend on the health of Leighton Van Der Esch and his neck. And can Jalen Smith rebound and have a better 2020 than he did in 2019? Byron Jones is a big guy that he got to replace. He didn't take the ball away, but he didn't give up a lot either. So there, there's a lot there. But we can go back to C.D. Lamb and how that impacts the defense. Mm-hmm. If you're scoring – if you have 14-point leads, 10-point leads, it's a lot easier for you to play defense. And go back to when the Cowboys were good in 2014. Romo had his best year. Uh, DeMarco Murray led the year in, uh, league in rushing. Dez had 16 touchdown catches, led the league. 2016, Dax rookie year, Zeke leads the league in rushing, and, mm. and they, they score 30-some-odd points a game. That helps your defense because mm. you know what the other team has to do to catch up to you. You can, you can ignore one side of the ball, uh, one side of the game, and just focus on them throwing, and that, that makes it easier for you. I think there's an element to the Cowboys' defense improving because the offense should be so stacked. Yeah, especially with – I saw you uh, on Twitter, I think, yesterday, the day before, somebody asked you about the punting situation, and you said they don't plan on punting. So the field position thing yeah. comes into play there, too. The defense isn't going to have a lot of short fields waiting for them as long as the offense doesn't turn the ball over. They won't be punted from their own 20 very often. And, I mean, obviously I was just joking on that one, but, like, if you're – if you're worried about the state of your punter keeping you from being a tender in, in, in football, uh, I mean, you got a pretty good team then, I guess, if you're <laughs> yeah. really worried about the punter. And not to, I'm not taking away from punters. In the, I, I love punters. Matt McBriar, the guy who was a Cowboys punter for years here, but, you know, a good, a good buddy of mine over the years. So, but, again, they, if, if Chris Jones, who is their guy, struggles again, I have a feeling they can go find a guy to handle the job well enough. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, if the punter is the biggest worry, then things are doing okay with the rest of the roster there. But um, so 
now, obviously, other the biggest change the Cowboys made this offseason was getting rid of Jason Garrett and bringing in Mike McCarthy, first head coaching change in a decade. So two-part question, first half, as a reporter, you've had a couple of uh, press conferences with Mike McCarthy. What are some differences interviewing him versus asking Garrett questions? And then secondly, what do you think is the most fundamental way that McCarthy is going to change this Cowboys team? The first part is not every press conference doesn't start with how we doing guys. Cause that was Jason Garrett. <laughs> every, they, they could, they have a crushing loss. Think of some of the crushing loss the 2016 or 2014 playoff game against green Bay, the 2016, he walks to the podium and he's like, how we doing guys? And I always just want to say, I'm doing a lot better than you are right now. I got to admit, but you know, so every press conference always started the same way with Jason Garrett. Mike has not been that way uh, in the, in the, limited times we've been around him. Um, but, you know, he's he's been a guy that you've asked questions and you will get forthright answers. Um, not, and I'm not saying Jason Garrett didn't, but I think with, when you're around a guy like, when you're around a coach for as long as you were around Jason Garrett, mm-hmm. we and, and it's a little bit like the guys in New England with, with Belichick, you know the answers before you even ask the questions. And sometimes that's a bad thing because you won't ask the questions. You still yeah. have to ask everything, whether the coach, you know what's going to be said or not said, you still have to ask the question to get the people on the record uh, to, to inform that. And I think there's there were times with Jason, I'm like, I, I don't want to ask this because I know what the answer is going to be. Thankfully, the other people in the room would, so we were good. Um, but with, with Mike, you know, it's going to be a feeling out process uh, with us and him and, and him with us as well. And, you know, again, the limited times we've been around him, he's been pretty forthright with what he said, you know, he's been asked multiple times, what kind of defense are you going to play? It's like, we're going to be a four man front. You know, some of these coaches might hide behind, well, we'll be multiple and we can, we'll be able to switch this and do this. Da, 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 da. No, he just answered the question. And I think, you know, that, that was kind of refreshing in some respects where he wasn't afraid to just answer that kind of question. Yeah. And what was the second part? I'm sorry. Just the most, uh, in a football sense, the f- most like fundamental or the biggest change that you see coming under McCarthy's uh, new regime. Well, from the on the field, I mean, obviously it's going to be so, still some of the Cowboys' offense that they had yeah. last year with Kellen Moore as a coordinator, but he'll bring in his influence that he had uh, in, in Green Bay. And you know, I think a lot of people just remember how it ended for him there, but don't want to remember the first. 11 or so years um, that were pretty good. When they go to the playoffs nine times, they go to the MC title game four and they win a Super Bowl. If you could tell the Cowboys over the next 10 years, that's what they're going to do. I would imagine everybody would take a Super Bowl win, four conference title games and nine playoff trips when they've not been to a conference championship game since 95 or won a Super Bowl since then. So I think you'll see some changes on, on their offense in terms of more molded with his philosophy than, than what they had, but not, not, not anything glaring. And mm. on defense, I can't really give you a good answer on what th- that will look different than what Rod Marinelli and Chris Richard have done, yeah. but how they're going to put all this stuff together. It's kind of hard to tell right now because you hear so many different things about stand up defensive, defensive ends in certain situations. I think there'll be more multiple in, in what they're and how they get after the quarterback. Uh, and maybe a little more adapt a little bit more in their secondary in terms of the different types of coverages they'll play. 
Yeah, and like you previously mentioned, the edge rushing outside of Demarcus Lawrence is lacking a little bit, so it does seem like they're going to have to get creative to create pressure off that edge there. Yeah, no quite. I mean, I, I'm trying to think. Their second-leading sacker from last year who's back is Jordan Lewis. He's a cornerback. He's made <laughs> four sacks. So, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're going to have to do some, some different things. And who knows, maybe Alden Smith, if he's a guy that can come in and play and, and reverts to the form he had with the Niners, then the Cowboys certainly hit on something. Yeah, certainly. But that definitely remains to be seen. Um, so now we're on to the more broader questions, a little bit more fun. What is your favorite football memory, Todd? Oh, my favorite football memory. Gosh, now I'm picturing all this stuff going through my head and I'm trying to come up with um, come up with one. Um, and I'm struggling. Honestly, I was, the first thing that came to my mind was my, my uh, – senior year in high school when my buddy was named the MVP of the Thanksgiving Day game against Millis. I can't give up that one because no one's going to know who, who or what that is. <laughs> um, there's one, there's a couple that, that stick with me and the one that I initially thought of was Boomer's last game uh, with the Bengals. And it's, again, it, it kind of goes back to the NASCAR story I was talking about. It's about the people, not necessarily about the game. And it was his last game at Riverfront Stadium. And I always try to be the last person to leave the locker room and try and get an extra nugget and do, you know, be that. And, and Boomer's walking out there with his family, with, with his son Gunner and his, and his, uh, his daughter, I believe, and maybe his wife might have been there too. And they just kind of stood there in the end zone uh, outside the locker room and just kind of took everything in. So I think they kind of knew that that was going to be it. Um, and it was like a moment that I'm like, Man, if, if it was now, I think about it, everybody would have their phone out videoing it or taking pictures and tweeting it and put it on Instagram and all that. But for me, it was just kind of one of these things where I was like, I still have that memory of them walking out on the field mm-hmm. after that game, you know, an hour and a half later, stadium's empty. And here's a guy that's seeing, you know, probably his football mortality, you know, go go right before him. And that, that, that one kind of, that one kind of sticks with me as, as a, it's not a game. I apologize for that, but it, that's kind of the one that comes to me when I think of, of, of all the stuff that I've covered. Yeah, definitely. That's a powerful moment to witness. Now, over the course of your career, who has been your favorite interview subject, if you can pick one? Um, Boomer's up there, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I've, I've been around Romo and Witten so much, I have to say those two guys. Zach yeah. Thomas was great as well. Jason Taylor was fantastic. Um, the guy, Patrick Sertan, the Dolphins cornerback, he was really good. But I would probably go with, with Romo and, and Witten because when I came to the Cowboys, it was their rookie year. So I kind of learned learned the Cowboys the same way they learned the Cowboys in some respects um, and got to know both of those guys r- really well. And just being able to pick their brain, even to this day, uh, just about certain football if, if I have questions about a football question or why would this guy have fought this, you know, they, they've been there to, to help me out at certain times. So uh, th- those two guys would probably be at the top of the list in terms of how they explained it, the relationship I was able to build with both those guys and the stories being able to tell from, I mentioned Paul and Romo on the golf course. I, mm. There's not another media person that has seen Romo golf more than me. Uh, <laughs> and then going up to Burlington, Wisconsin, for his football camp and spending uh, a, a weekend with him and his family 
his mom and dad and everybody up up there, you know, Jason Witten having the access with, with him in terms of telling his story from where, he, how he grew up and things, and, you know, those two guys would be at the top of the list. Definitely good choices. Now I'm interested to hear your answer in this question as somebody who's lived in the area for almost two decades now, what is your go-to spot to eat in Dallas? Uh, Nick and Sam's probably steakhouse, um, you know, in, in uptown that you can't beat that one. Um, but if you want something quick and quick and easier, uh, the Tex-Mex place called, or called media, that's another one that I would recommend to people. But if you want the big fancy steakhouse, Nick and Sam's, if you want Tex-Mex and you know, that, if that's kind of floating your boat, media is another one. Well, those are the two things people go to Dallas for when they're looking for food. So I think those are two excellent answers. <laughs> um, get some advertising from those guys. <laughs> you're telling me, man. I asked everybody those questions. So, I mean, I should get a little bump, so, a little bump my way. Um, yeah. What's something about this job that you feel like other people don't know or they don't really understand? The first thing that popped my mind was we don't get free tickets. Um, <laughs> Everybody will ask, oh, can you get tickets? Can you get tickets? I'm like, I might be able to get tickets, but guess what? I got to pay for them. It's not, <laughs> you know, you know that, so that, that that's an element of it. And then another part of it is you're never really off. Um, and and that, I'm okay with that. And my, my family is okay with that. My wife is in the uh, college sports business as well. So she kind of gets it. Um, but I don't, the only time my phone is turned off is when I'm on an airplane. Yeah. Um, and that's not been here for, for quite a while, but it, 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 it's a 24 seven job in, in a lot of respects. I can go back, you know, I broke the Ezekiel Elliott signing with the Cowboys. When was that? August, September, uh, right before the season started. My, my phone rang at 458. I, so, I mean, that, that kind of tells you how it is. And I don't think people realize just how all-encompassing it is but at the same time you can have a work day that lasts four hours and you're not sitting at a desk watching the clock watching the clock and then sliding down the dinosaur's tail at the at five o'clock it, mm -hmm. it's it's you know the having the the ability to always be on yet sometimes have an easy day is has been kind of appealing definitely and then finally obviously the industry has changed significantly as far as newspapers and online since you began your career in the 90s but just looking back, is there anything that you wish you knew back when you were starting out, just working for uh, that newspaper up in New Hampshire? It's a great question, and I think part of it, I, I from having worked at the Globe as a college kid, um, you're kind of schooled in how the business works and, and what it's like. So I came in with a pretty good idea of what it would be, but I think and obviously it's evolved unbelievably from 1992 to, to now. Um, I think if I could tell myself something then that I know now, it would be, I, I don't want to say be open to technology because then, then people assume you're just close to it. But yeah. I just think be up with technology and, and be aware of the changing times and how you need to evolve. Um, like I said earlier, I had no idea, like my first few sports under hits, I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. I'd never trained to do that before. Um, so, it, you know, kind of always study the study just more than 
it's important to read. It's important to read everything and different kind of writers and different, not just sports and everything, but it's kind of watch it, watch everything with a different eye as to why the television version of this story or the radio side of the story or the podcast side of the story is different than the written word. Um, that might be something that I can hang my hat on. Yeah, definitely. Pretty good. Does that make my- any sense? Yeah, no makes idea if that made any sense. <laughs> makes plenty of sense to me. And any aspiring journalist could uh, well, take. Here's a story. It, it, this is a story that Lee Montville, and I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but no, no he, he kind of told me, and I hope I can cuss on this thing. Um, of course. Or, or if you can peep it, maybe. But <laughs> so Lee was a uh, columnist at the Globe, and I was a college kid. And on Mondays, there was an intra Globe um, basketball league. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, the sports would play advertising or the newsroom or the return room. And we were awful. Like, we, we were by far the worst team. But the best part for me was going to the Leeds Hill Cafe right next to the place we played in Dorchester. Yep. This bar with Lee and Don Squar, who was the sports editor at the Globe at the time. And I learned more just from sitting in the bar with those guys, hearing their stories about the business and sports and sports writing and editing and things than in any classroom that I, that I took. But one thing Lee told me, and I, I, I remember this the other day uh, for a story not too long ago, if you're covering a game and a horse walks onto the field and takes a shit right about the horse. <laughs> so that, that kind of stuck with me because what are people going to talk about? They're not going to talk about the game. They're going to talk about the horse. Mm-hmm. So that, that was, you know, that, that might be something I think for, for, kids coming or younger people coming into it, it's like what are people going to talk about beyond just hey who won and who lost what happened in that game and, and that was something that lee told me way back when that i still think of today yeah definitely sticks with you after all those times and i can't think of a better piece of advice hopefully all right todd. That. <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff Todd, thank you so much. That'll conclude the interview. I really appreciate you coming on, being honest and forthright with your answers. It was a really fascinating discussion. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And thank you, listener, as always, for tuning in, and I will see you next time.